Father Peter Gilquist's name and his person and his heart is synonymous with Orthodox evangelism in the United States. He has taught us in that same sense of humility in, in the gospel message that you need to, he's taught us many things, but one of the things he's taught us is you need to meet people where they are. You see how he's done that in his work, for example, with his old fraternity, with SAE, and in every aspect of what he's doing. What many of you may not know is that he founded in Minnesota the Swedish Orthodox Church. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> uh, but that humility has been demonstrated a, a, a year or two ago. Uh, I was asked by a very committed uh, Orthodox Christian if I would be willing, as he had, to accept this Ellis Island Medal of Honor, which is supposedly a very prestigious thing. And uh, I did, uh, because I didn't want to disappoint the, this man, in part. Um, and once you've done that, you're able to nominate people uh, and give a preference. And I thought and thought about who could I help honor uh, of the, all the people I know, which is a fair number of people, and I decided that Father Peter Gilquist would be the right one. But that's not the point of my story here. The point is that as we got closer and closer to the date, they, they were short on picking from these thousands of names, uh, 100 people, from across the land, and Father Peter called me and he said, would I disappoint you very much if I withdrew my name from the nomination for this prestigious award because I've really got to be at the OCF board meeting? And I thought, that is the kind of witness that we really need. Uh, very few people on this earth have touched the lives of so many as Father Peter Gilquist. I have heard all of you. I know in my own life, I worked with him on the Orthodox Study Bible. I told you in my first presentation how he influenced me on, on the Russia situation. Uh, uh, his book, Becoming Orthodox, uh, I read very little, as you can probably tell. Uh, and I, I couldn't put it down. I read it in one, one, one sitting, and I know how much impact it's had on you and countless others. But most important, each of you, I've heard you speak publicly, I've heard some of you speak privately, and how many countless more feel as you do what an impact on this man, uh, on, on the world, and on your lives as this man had. Well, I've already violated the scriptures by talking about how good you are, Father Peter, but you never have that done. And uh, now, ta-dam, I present to you the very Reverend Father Peter Gilquist, the chairman of the Antiochian Department of Missions and Evangelism. Thank you. Is <laughs> that flowery? Ah. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, the session this, today, this afternoon, is on the communion of the saints and the intercession of the saints. Um, questions, and this is all anecdotal, I can't prove it, I, it's just questions come in waves. Um, when we first came in, everything was about Mary. You know, how, well, why do you honor Mary so much? And some even accused of, of, of worshiping her. And I don't get that much anymore. And then uh, tradition was a big deal. You know, Jesus warned against uh, 
people that look to tradition. Why does the Orthodox Church, you know, honor and try to respect tradition? And of course, the answer is there's two kinds of traditions described in the New Testament. One is the tradition of men, which the Lord and St. Paul also condemned. And the other is, is the tradition of the apostles, the things they taught. And that we keep, we honor that. So the word tradition is a neutral word. There's good tradition and bad tradition. And uh, right now, the big thing I get all the time is, what's this deal about asking the saints to pray for us? And so that's what I'd like to do. And if someone's got a big, thick magic marker that they'll bring up here, I'll put these Bible references on the board here so you can, as you take notes, you can have them. First of all, I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I want to do Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Magnificent passage. It's a prayer of intercession by St. Paul. And uh, the, the thing I want to gain with you here is simply how many churches are there in the universe, okay? How many churches exist? He says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family... Is that plural or singular? How many families are there? One family. Where? In heaven and on earth. Okay? To start out with a vision of what we mean by the communion of the saints, there is just one church. Some of it's enrolled in heaven. The rest of it's here. And we are part of, obviously, the church here, the church on earth. Uh, there's also a, a, a portion of the body of Christ that is in heaven. And um, by the way, next time someone says, well, if the Orthodox Church is the true church, how come there are so many problems? Well, just the same reason there were problems in Corinth and uh, Galatia. And that's not to excuse it. But, but we never claim to be the perfect church. There is a perfect church. You can read about it in Hebrews 12, and we're going to in just a minute. And that's the spirits of righteous men made perfect. That's the portion of the church enrolled in heaven, perfected. We seek to be perfect as the Lord is perfect. But so far I've not many, met anyone that's pulled it off on this side of heaven. All right? That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend, and here's another key place, with all the saints, what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, comprehend with all the saints. All what saints? Heaven and earth. So all of us form the body of Christ. And uh, that, that's why we can even talk about the communion of the saints. So then the question becomes, are, are the saints that are enrolled in heaven cut off from the saints on earth? And there's nowhere in the scripture that that's even intimated. Um, turn next to Hebrews 12. We'll start up. 1 to 4, and then we're going to skip up. I think it's about verse 28. And Hebrews 12 is famous because it's that place where we read that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. I love that passage. 
In, in Hebrews 11, St. Paul, or whoever wrote it, it's attributed to Paul, uh, but it's, it's an unsigned letter. Uh, so we don't fight for that. It's obviously someone very godly and very knowledgeable of the Hebrew scriptures that wrote this, and the church has always attributed it to Paul. Um, Hebrews 11, someone called the Hall of Fame of Faith. These are the great Old Testament saints, and, and it concludes with men and, by calling them men and women of whom the world was not worthy. They, they were too good for us in, in the highest sense of the world. But you know, Abraham is in there, Moses is in there, just all of the heroes of the Old Testament. And uh, the last verse in Hebrews 11, and it says, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. In other words, the reason that the quote show didn't end with the Old Testament is because something better was coming. And that, of course, is Christ and the New Covenant. So the verse, uh, chapter 12 starts out with a therefore. And here's a good hint on Bible study. Whenever you see a therefore, you always check to see what it's there for. And it, it's almost always a reference to what has just been said. Okay? So it's, it's the review of the Old Testament luminaries. Therefore, we also, we who are alive and well right now, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the people in the Old Testament, uh, as specifically mentioned in that chapter, let, <clears throat> let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the picture here is an ancient Greek stadium, and the runners are on the track. We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Those are the people up in the stands. But, but here's the thing. You go to an NFL game, and uh, somebody defined it, it's, uh, compared the NFL, uh, an NFL football uh, a game with, with the church, and that is... Uh, you know, 80,000 people in the stands who desperately need exercise, watching 22 guys on the field who desperately need rest. <laughs> and the people in the stands here are those that have won the race and received the crown of glory. They're not the, you know, guys up in the field, hey, you know, yelling at everybody, They've never played a day of football in their lives. But they, they know what all those guys down there in the field ought to be doing. Our, our grandstand is the people that ran the race, those saints of the Old Testament, that now are enrolled in heaven, and they surround us. They're not absent from us in the sense that the secular world looks at death. In fact, you know, sometimes, well, why do you pray for the dead? Well, we don't, because they're not dead. We pray for the departed. They're departed to Christ, and we ask the Lord to have mercy on them. Grant them rest. And, uh, but we don't, if, if you're in Christ and you pass away, you're not dead, my friend. You've just moved on to a better way of life. And then one day we'll be reunited again in him. So the picture is we're the runners. We're running the race set before us with endurance. 
And I'd love to announce to you it's a 100-yard dash, it's a marathon, a lifelong marathon. And the saints that have gone on before us to their rest are, as it were, up there cheering us on. Early in our uh, discovery of orthodoxy, we had an article written about us uh, claiming that, uh, that rather than just being Christians who are centered in Christ, now we're, we're following uh, these little-known church fathers. And then it, the guy named them, Chrysostom, Athanasius, little-known church fathers, give me a break. The fact is, the only reason, now hear me, the only reason we follow the lead of the fathers is because they followed Christ. That's what makes them fathers. And that's why in the next verse, St. Paul says, as we run the race, we're not just looking up at the stands. We look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We are centered in Christ as are those people in the stands that are cheering us on. So it's not a thing of either looking to Christ or looking to the fathers. The fact is it's both, because they looked to Christ. Again, how many churches are there? There's just one. They've gone on before us. They're part of the church. We're still running the race. We're, by the grace of God, part of the church. And I think, the, as I've said many times, the, the paradigm shift for us was when we quit reading and looking at people like Chrysostom and Ignatius of Antioch and Irenaeus and judging them, saying, are they in our church? To where we got to where we said the issue isn't, are they in our church, are we in their church? because they're the foundation of this thing. We're Johnny's come lately. So our deal is not to judge whether they got it right, it's to judge whether we're getting it right. And that was a huge shift for us. As one of our men put it, um, instead of judging church history, I began to let church history judge me. Huge difference. So, Again, as we run the race, live that Christian life, we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, but we're surrounded as we run it by those that have finished and gone on before us. So it's one family, some of it in heaven, some of it on earth. Then over in the back of Hebrews 12, uh, beginning in verse, actually verse 18, he compares the Old Covenant and the New. Starting in verse 18 of Hebrews 12, You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and burned with fire, to the blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded, and, and if so much as the, a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid. What, what event is that describing? The, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Okay, on Mount Sinai. Uh, and then the, the next verse begins with a but. And the word but always says, now here's the contrast to that. But you have come to Mount Zion 
to the city of the living God. And, and notice the, the t verb tense here. You have come. Not will come, have come. Some people read this and say it's talking about heaven. No, it's talking about something that's already happened. But you have come to Mount Zion, <clears throat> to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to that general assembly and church of the firstborn, singular church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than the blood of Abel. Okay, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of not the old covenant, the new. He gave the law, but now he comes to fulfill the law and brings us a new covenant. And what it's describing here is worship. You have come. Uh, let's look at it again. To Mount Zion. We've, we meet him in the heavenlies. We are raised with Christ, St. Paul said, to heavenly places. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That, that's why in worship we say we're surrounded here by the saints, the angels, the martyrs. But we come to worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or put it another way. This morning, technically, how many Eucharists went on in the universe? Just one. Where, where was that Eucharist held? It was held in heaven. Who served it? Christ himself. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 8. Serving at the altar of God. In fact, the word, the minister of the new covenant, in Hebrews 8 to the word is the liturgist of the new covenant. And so this morning, we, along with millions and millions of others, joined with that Eucharist, with that liturgy, taking place in heaven. Marvelous. Who was present? All the saints of heaven. The angels were there. And, and they're with us. That great company surrounds us. All right? So we come to the living God, the gen general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, and the blood of sprinkling, which we received this morning, the body and blood of Christ. And that, that's majestic. So in Hebrews chapter 12, we find that the church here is not isolated from that church. If that were true, there'd be no, there would be no worship. But rather, we're in communion with that church. And by the way, that's why confession is so important. Because if we mess up and stay messed up, we become out of communion. And thus we come and confess our sins. And it's hard. Nobody likes to admit they messed up. I don't. I, I don't ever say, gee, I can't wait to get confession. It's embarrassing. Probably some of the stuff I confess will be what I confessed last time I was there. But we just keep trucking. We stay on the path. So, 
Ephesians 1, there's one church, some in heaven, some on earth. Hebrews 12, we embellish what we read in, in Ephesians 3, that we're like runners on the track, the people that have gone on before us to their rest are in the stands. We run, all of us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and we ascend to worship him in heavenly places. And of course, that's why you know, we take such pains to make sure the church reflects what we have seen through the eyes of people like Isaiah the prophet, what we saw through John the apostle as he was caught up and writing the book of Revelation. There's an altar there described by Isaiah, the holy, holy, holy in Isaiah chapter 6 as he gets caught up. Here's angels singing. We didn't just make up holy, holy, holy. It was revealed to us. First to Isaiah, and now to us in the church. God gave us the hymn to sing. He gave us the prayer to pray, our Father who art in heaven. I mean, it's just, it's, it's here. And these are things that if you read the scriptures, apart from the benefit of the holy tradition of the church, it just, it doesn't make sense. Hebrews 12 was a closed chapter to me as an evangelical. I did not know what to do with it. John chapter 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Closed chapter. I remember leading Bible studies and say, we'll just skip over John 6. Let's go on to John 7. I didn't know what to do with it. Some of you are smiling. I'm sure you probably had that experience too. Okay. Now, let's go back into the Gospels and uh, talk for a minute about does any of this show up in the teaching of Christ? I'm going to do the quick one, which is John chapter 2. I'm not even going to turn there. And that is the wedding at Cana. Okay, the Lord is there, his disciples are there, and his mother is there. And in, in the, during the wedding, they run out of wine. The servants come to her, not to Christ. And, you know, I don't know why, but they came to her. And they said, we've run out of wine. And she motions them to her son, and it's just that marvelous sentence, whatever he tells you to do, do it. What, a, what great advice from a mother. And she is revealed there at, at his first miracle, first recorded miracle. She is revealed as intercessor. Now, could they have come directly to the Lord? I, I suppose they could have. But I think what St. John is trying to get us to understand here is that we don't just ask Jesus for help. We ask other people to intercede for us for his help. And on that day, they came to Mary. And then Mary interceded and, and sent them to Christ. Um, and once I got that straight, as, you know, I've always asked my Christian friends on earth to pray for me. Uh, Marilyn and I, one of the first people we ever met, uh, she, met a, she met Grandma Mac before I was a Christian. And Grandma Mac was a woman in Minneapolis whose ministry was prayer. She prayed three, four hours a day. And that's minus liturgical prayer. I mean, she, she winged it. 
And I'd, I'd have exploded if I'd have prayed that long each day. And Grandma Mac had a ministry of prayer. And if you ended up on her prayer list, look out. And uh, the, the girl that brought Marilyn to faith in Christ was a very close friend of Grandma Mac, who then was, I think, in her 70s. And so uh, Marilyn put my name on Grandma Mac's prayer list. And I was not only on the list, I was number one on the list. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I still think of that night I gave my life to the Lord. Part of me didn't even want to. But I just knew I had to. And I did it of free will. I didn't know Grandma Mac existed. But her prayers are so powerful that, that God drew me to himself. It was more than just me deciding. And what a, what a gift she is. So I've, I've always believed in asking my friends to pray. Well, listen, we got friends in high places. Are they, are they more on praying ground, so to speak, than those of us here? I believe so. I mean, you've got the 24 elders praying day and night, and we're going to get into that verse as well. So intercessory prayer has always been huge, but it's not limited just to other people on earth. We can ask those in heaven to pray for us. I'll never forget, it's one of my favorite stories, our oldest daughter, Wendy, uh, she and Deacon Tom had a, had a little boy, David, and then she became pregnant again. And, uh, of course, having gone through the first one, she had the bags packed, ready to go, and it was one in the morning, uh, one morning, and she woke Tom up, and she said, it's time. So they got up, her bag was already packed, and she said, I'm not going to make it. I can feel the baby coming. And we had just been teaching on asking saints to pray for us. So uh, they, instead of, of the regular procedure where he'd take her in, they called 911. The medics came out there, picked her up, loaded her in the van, and on the way to the hospital, they said, Ms. Braun, we're not going to take you to the hospital that is on the list because it's too far. We're going to take you to the closest hospital. Meantime, Deacon Tom heads to the former hospital. And so she's back there, laying there in the van, and I'm remembering that we've been taught on and uh, talking about praying, asking the, the saints to pray for us. She said, laying there, I said, who up there understands what I'm going through? <laughs> and she said, Mary. Mary not, not only didn't make it to the hospital, they, they wouldn't even let her in the hotel. She had the baby in a manger. And she said, it was the first time I ever asked Mary or any saint to pray for me. So I just said, Mary, Mother, God, you know what I'm going through. Please just, just let them get me in the doors of the ER. I don't even care about the maternity ward. Just inside. I don't want to have this baby in the van. Two strange guys up there. I want to get in the hospital. So 45 seconds into the emergency room, she gave birth to a little girl thanking God that she was in the hospital. And she and Tom had picked out a name, and the first name, they, they were going to name his daughter Evie. Evie was a, a, a singer of Christian music back in those days, and Wendy loved her voice, she, she loved her song. And finally Tom figures out what's going on, makes his way to the hospital, and she says, Honey, we got to name her Mary. <laughs> so dear Mary Elizabeth, now she's our first grandchild that's married, She's, a, she's beautiful both physically and spiritually, and as we speak, she is Cinderella at Disneyland of Paris, France. 
and she and her new husband are spending the, the second year of their marriage in Paris. How's that for romantic, folks? And uh, just had some wonderful opportunities there. They go to St. Alexander Church, uh, and upstairs it's in Russian, downstairs it's in French, and they go to the French service. And uh, what a joy to watch that little girl grow. But she's named after the Mother of God because it was the Mother of God that interceded for Wendy to get her into the hospital to have that baby. That, doesn't that make sense? Man, you know, it's just, of course. St. Pontal Layman prays for those, he was burned, prays for those who are injured. Uh, St. Nectarios, right after I was uh, uh, diagnosed with cancer 11 years ago, I kept getting these icons of St. Nectarios in the mail. And then somebody gave me uh, some holy water from his monastery. And we discovered that St. Nectarios prays for cancer patients with great success. So we began to ask for his prayers. And I, I'm convinced it's the prayers of the saints both here and enrolled in heaven that brought me through this thing because I shouldn't be here. And what a, what, a, what a joy that is to know that we can ask for the intercession of the saints of God both here and there. Okay, next I want to go to Luke chapter 16. And go ahead and write that down, uh, starting in verse 19. And it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, we just did John 2, marriage at Cana. And now we've got Luke 16, rich man and Lazarus. I'll put it R and L. Now, here's the crucial thing. For, especially for a Protestant that, that is struggling with this, who is telling the story of the rich man and Lazarus? The Lord himself, okay? This isn't even apostolic commentary. This is Christ himself doing the teaching. And Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Every day was banquet day. No fast days, just feast days. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his gate, desiring to be fed just with the crumbs which fell from the man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. I mean, this is awful, okay? So it was that, uh, that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. We, we could go an hour on that. And being in torment in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom, which is a picture of paradise. Now, the rich man cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And Abraham said, don't you know the Bible says call no man father? No, he didn't say that. <laughs> See, but... <laughs> Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in, uh, tormented in this flame. And Abraham didn't answer, call no man father. Do you know what he answered? Son. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise, Lazarus, evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us there is a great gulf fixed, so that those 
who want to pass from here to there to you cannot, nor can those there pass to us. Okay. Now, we talk about Christians asking saints to intercede. I mean, the Old Testament, you just don't get much better than Abraham. Here was a man that was not even a believer in the sense of, you know, that we think of somebody that knows God. He'd gone his own way. And so we're not even talking about a saint asking for prayer. We're talking about a sinner asking for prayer. He's already in Hades. And he gets an answer from none other than Abraham. Now, if an unrighteous man can get an answer, how much more a righteous person? And so uh, they, they, he got the answer. It was no. And by the way, God always answers prayer, but sometimes it is no. There is no such thing as unanswered prayer. But sometimes the answer is no. Then he said, the rich man, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, him Lazarus, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Not only am I not living a godly way, I got five brothers that are in the same shape that I am. So at least he turns from himself to those that were in need. Abraham answers him again. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said back, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now that story was told by one who would rise from the dead. And it also reveals to us Jesus' view of the Holy Scriptures. You want to know God? You want to repent? Read Moses and the prophets. Powerful. There's so, so much happening out there today, even in religious circles that assail the scriptures. The Son of God says, read Moses and the prophets. So Abraham got his answer, and the answer was no. And I'll tell you what, if you can't take Moses and the prophets' words for it, you can't take the resurrected Christ's word for it. Now that's Christ talking. Powerful. Can we trust the scriptures? Oh, absolutely. If they're good enough for the Son of God, they're good enough for us. I don't care what the theologians out there are saying, the higher critics. Jesus said you can trust them. And to be honest, that's why we worked our tails off for the study Bible. We, I want Orthodox people to have access to the scriptures. And it was hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Father Richard's dead. I said to him, don't you dare die till this is over, because we won't make it. Literally, because we lost Father Jack. We lost Paul Getz. Those were our three-time, full-time people. We had Father Richard left. And uh, he, he made it one year after, and God took him. His wife said he sat up in bed at four in the morning, one morning, grabbed his heart, and he prayed, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. And that was it. What a way to go. So through 
Lazarus and the rich man, what do we learn? Even a sinner can ask for the intercessions of a saint. And even a sinner can find God through reading the scriptures. Okay, next. Two more quick ones. Number one, really interesting passage. Second uh, Timothy chapter 1, verse 16 to 18. St. Paul and his ministry had bunches of friends. And one of his friends was Onesephorus. And uh, he met him evidently in Rome, according to the text here. At least he was with him in Rome. And now he's writing to his apostolic understudy, St. Timothy. This is the last book, by the way, St. Paul ever wrote, the la- chronologically. Written probably in about 65, just shortly before his own death. And uh, after a greeting, and up in verse 13, hold fast to the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me, and so on. Uh, This you know, verse 15, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. And then he says, the Lord grant mercy to somebody that didn't turn away from me. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus. Onesephorus had died, and by the way, even the Protestant commentaries admit this. Otherwise, he'd say, give my, uh, uh, grant uh, mercy to Onesephorus and his house. Onesephorus was no longer at the house. So he says, grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, that is the family of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me, past tense, and was not ashamed of my imprisonment or my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously, and he found me, and he found him in prison. Then he says, the Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day, capital D, that's Judgment Day, and you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. St. Paul is praying for a departed saint. And you can't get around that in the scripture. As a matter of fact, right at the end of 2 Timothy, again he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesephorus, the family of Onesephorus. He prays for the soul of a departed Christian. I'll never forget, uh, as the chaplain of the fraternity, I got a call from our executive director a couple, three years ago, that a a young man at Louisiana Tech in Reston, Louisiana, had had shot himself, killed himself. Would I go? And I was able to go. So I flew down there, and I got to the house. It was about, it was right in the fall of the year. It was about this time, because school was just starting, and uh, the guys were out on the deck behind the house and just stunned. And it, it was a gruesome uh, killing. He'd, he'd been drinking all weekend and he got a deer rifle and shot himself and, and it took the fire department a day to just clean the room. And the kid that was president of the fraternity the, the semester before was a Roman Catholic kid. And he said, can I talk to you alone? I, I, I came out there and I dressed the guys. We prayed together and then I said, now some of you are going to want to talk. And this kid was the first kid up and he said, 
You know, I've been taught as a Roman Catholic that <clears throat> anybody that kills himself is, is slam dunk in hell. And he said, this is one of my best friends. What do I do? And I said, well, first of all, we're not the judge. The church hates suicide. It's dark. But there's one thing you can still do, my friend, and that is you can pray for him. And I said, let me give you the prayer. It's just really easy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on him. This kid was just liberated. I said, it's not that we're talking God into anything, but we're asking the Lord to have mercy on him. We don't know what drove him to this. But God knows. And God is always merciful. And so he began to pray for his friend. And then I met the two guys that discovered the body. And uh, <clears throat> this was the third day that, he, that they knew he was dead. They hadn't slept in three days. And, you know, I, I always try to be sensitive how much to do without blowing them away. And I wanted to lay hands on them, and I felt the Lord say, don't do that. So I didn't. But I talked about a passage that, of St. Paul in Corinthians where he says, casting down vain imaginations and every thought that raises itself up against the knowledge of Christ. They were having nightmares without even being asleep. It, they said it's like an instant replay. I said, okay, guys, we're going to pray. They were both Catholic. I said, we're going to ask God to take those imaginations, those images is what that word means, out of your brain. You'll still remember you found them. You'll still remember it happened. But what we're asking God to do is to take those instant replays out and bring those thoughts captive to Jesus Christ. And so I prayed for them and... Uh, Next morning, I saw him. How'd you sleep last night? They both said, like a baby. And I, I, that's, that's extra. That's not part of the theme. But what a, you know, it's, this is why I do this. I, it, this is not fun stuff with the fraternity. But you know, if I don't do it, nobody's going to do it. And to be able to see those guys just released from that darkness was glorious. And then the Catholic guy, to be able to pray for his friend, Lord, have mercy on him. How do we know to do that? St. Paul prayed for a man that was departed, Onesephorus. So we know we can. And it's in the scripture. And, and see, most, most of our hesitancy as former Protestants is that we were schooled that anything Rome does is wrong. Never mind what the Bible says. If Rome does it, it can't be right. Well, the fact is Rome didn't get it all wrong. And if St. Paul can pray for the soul of a departed man, granted a Christian, we can pray for the soul of departed people. My grandpa, when I was in junior high, this is a hard story to tell, never, he never went to church, baptized Roman Catholic, my maternal grandfather. And when I was in junior high, he, he knew he was dying, and I went over to see him one day, and he said, Peter, how can I be saved? I said, Grandpa, I can't tell you. And I... I when I, be, when I became Orthodox, I began praying for him. Lord, have mercy. Grant him rest. And just the fact he asked me the question tells me he's seeking. And the Lord did tell us if we seek with him, for him we'll find him. 
I'm not trying to pray him into heaven. I just want God to have mercy at the judgment on him. And, and I know God is way more merciful than all of us in this room put together. So we pray for him. Lord, have mercy. Doesn't that make sense? Just To me, I just say, how did I miss this? How did I miss it? Okay, final scripture. <clears throat> Revelation 11. And if you're into music, I married a music major. Uh, and if, even if you're not into music, I, all of us would say one of the greatest uh, is it a cantata? What's Handel's Messiah? A which? Oratorio. Okay, that shows you how much I know. I don't, I don't know the difference between an oratorio and a cantata. Cantata just sounds like a good word. Okay. Chapter 11, Revelation 11, starting in verse 15, and we'll go down to about 18. Okay, then the seventh, in, okay, we're, we're in a period of incredible tribulation on the earth. And um, this is before the Lord returns, just literally all hell is breaking loose on the earth. And um, it says, then the seventh angel, the trumpet, I'm sorry, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying. And the fathers teach us that those 24 elders are the 12 patriarchs of Israel and the apostles of Jesus Christ. And I, I can't imagine who else they'd be. And here's the prayer. We give thanks to you. Oh, Lord God. Boy, I mean, if you want to learn to pray, next to the Lord's Prayer, here's the prayer. We give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and is to come, eternal. Because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants and prophets and the saints. Here's Heaven's elders praying for the, for the servants of God and the prophets during this time of tribulation on the earth. And those who fear your name, small and great, he prays for the people, and, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. And then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen in this temple, and so on. Lightnings and noises, thunderings, earthquakes. The saints of God in heaven are interceding for God's people on the earth in Revelation chapter 11. So that's the biblical answer to the question, why do we, why do we ask for the, for the intercession of the saints? Okay, let's review it. How many churches are there? One. Some of it in and some on earth. But one family. One family. Okay, the first miracle of God. At marriage of Cana, Mary is revealed as intercessor. Christ is revealed as miracle worker and bridegroom. And she's revealed as intercessor. Rich man and Lazarus, an unrighteous man, intercedes and asks for the intercession of Abraham. Got a no, but he got an answer. And then St. Paul prays for his departed friend, Onesephorus, that the Lord will have mercy on him. What a great prayer. Lord, have mercy. And then finally, 
we see the, the four and twenty elders who intercede before the throne of God day and night, praying for the saints and the prophets on the earth during a time of horrible trouble. Okay, that that's pretty clear, I think, isn't it? Um, thank God He's revealed this to us in His Holy Word. Well, we've got a few minutes for questions. Yes, it's Richard, right? Okay. <clears throat> Starting to get names nailed down here on our last day together. That's right, Father George. Isn't that right? <laughs> I have uh, two questions, Father. The first one, um, one, one typical response for prayers for people who may be in Hades, not with the righteous, is it seems to blunt the teaching of Jesus about the, the severity of hell and the importance of avoiding hell. Oh, yeah. How can we speak to that typical well, response? Well, because we don't judge who's in hell and who isn't. And that, that's a phenomenal freedom. We warn people. But when, when, when the final gun sounds, it, it, I'm not, I'm not going to know, and neither are you or neither are any of us, till the judgment who's in and who's not. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, the, the second question, Father, is I, I don't know if uh, contemporary evangelicals might be so concerned about being more Roman Catholic and prayers for the dead. I think in this day and age they might be concerned to be more like Mormons because we uh, know that Mormons pray for the dead and baptize dead spirits. Mm-hmm. How could we speak to evangelicals who would have that concern and differentiate what we would do for what Mormons might do? Well, there, there is, even in the New Testament, most people admit they don't know what it means, the, the, the reference to baptism of the dead. And I don't think it's what the Mormons do. I, I'm not real sure what that is. Um, but we, we operate not on what we don't know. We operate on what we do know. And so I would just say we do know that God is merciful. We know that the Lord does not desire that any be lost, but that all should come to repentance and the knowledge of the truth. Uh, we know that God commands us to love even our enemies. So when, when I pray for the departed, I pray for people that I'm just pretty darn sure are in his presence, and then some that I have doubts. And just say, Lord, have mercy. So if, I think when, it, when you go beyond that, then you start you know, getting into vain speculation. And for Lord's sake, we don't want to do that. Um, some would say, well, the answer is that you know, at the judgment, God's going to yell, ali, ali, oxen free, and everybody's going to scamper in. The church has never taught that. That's universalism. But neither has the church taught us to judge and try to find out who's in and who's out before the, the end of the age. So in, in this period, because of our love for our family and friends, we pray, Lord, have mercy on them. Thank you, Father. Okay. Yeah, I probably won't get to all these questions, but Patrick. Uh, just a, 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 a maybe stupid Protestant question, um, but is the witness of church history on this particular topic, to the best of your knowledge, unified, clear, no question. I know we covered the scriptural part, but I was just curious about the, yeah. from the beginning of the history after the apostles, has yeah. this been a unified? You always have people asking for intercession and intercession for those that are departed. In the Orthodox funeral, we pray that God will forgive the, the dead person. And then the next sentence is, for there never has been a man who has lived who hasn't sinned. 
So I, I would say, any of the other clergy that have studied this want to chime in here? I, I okay. Instead of related to this, in my, as a Lutheran pastor, that was my question. I see the scriptures, but what about church history? And a stumbling block for me was the early fathers. I didn't see anything written about it much. Then I met an Antiochian priest in 1999, Father David Hester, who was in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Now he's in uh, Wilkesbury at St. Right. Mary's here in Pennsylvania. And I asked him, I said, where's this at? And he said, well, I know, I, 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 I'm very much aware of it written. He said, I saw it on the catacomb walls. Hmm. He said, I studied in Rome. And he said, this is from the third century, the 200s, well before Constantine and the takeover and the supposed change. And so that really took me back. And then also the earliest extant written prayer is to the Theotokos. It's 250 AD. The Latin name for it is Subtuum Presidium. Uh, but written in Greek, it, what it says is, is under your compassion we take refuge, O Theotokos, and protect us. And uh, it was in the Coptic uh, Egyptian uh, nativity liturgy. So it was mainstream. It wasn't like prayed in some, you know, backwaters. This was the Christmas liturgy of the Egyptian church hmm. in communion with us at that time. And to this day, it's still found in our uh, Orthodox uh, compline during Lent. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and finally, the key to me and what dawned on me was, is why don't you have a lot of stuff written about it? Because it was never a controversy. Mm -hmm. The writings were about things that were controversial. So, in my mind, if there would have been a shift, let's say the early church in the apostolic period would not have asked intercession of saints, if in the next couple generations there would have been a change, the church would have went crazy. It would have fought against it. You would have had evidence of a fight. It fought against Marcionism. It fought against Arianism later on. It fought against Donatism. You name all the isms. It fought. And it never fought over intercession of saints. Mm -hmm. I'm sure glad you're Orthodox. <laughs> okay, I don't know who's next here. Go ahead. I can't see it because of the glare. It's Ron, Ron Ephraim. Hi. Okay. Um, regarding the the people in the saints in heaven being alive, and um, the transfiguration when Moses and Elijah appear with Christ. Right. Um, that's a great example of the fact that they're not off in limbo, but right. they're right there. And, and that, uh, that's the scripture I didn't get to. Yeah. And I wondered, uh, what was Jesus talking with them about? Was he discussing what he was going to do next? Or what do the fathers teach on that? Personally, I've never studied that through. I, I, don't, you know, I don't know what the, the mind of the church is on what they talked about. Mm -hmm. But words were exchanged. And, and, and uh, uh, the disciples that were with him, bingo, knew him right off the bat. And how that happens, I don't know. Yeah. But it's, yeah. I just heard a sermon uh, over the, the August uh, feast days. Uh, Father, uh, Father Nicholas Hughes, a monk from Ohio, was in our church. Mm -hmm. And he said that um, Elias and Moses were discussing with Jesus the coming uh, crucifixion and resurrection. Mm. Okay. He's been to the Holy Land, so he knows a lot of the history. Yeah. Back what we do know is Moses is there representing the law. And Elijah is there representing the prophets. The, fa the fathers are very clear on that. So you've essentially got the whole heritage of the Old Testament present on the Mount of Transfiguration represented by those two luminaries. And as I was speaking on it, it in our parish, I just said this would be like, you know, in, in, in baseball, if Babe Ruth and 
Ty Cobb were to show up. I mean, th these are the two heroes of the Old Testament. Father? Um, I just wanted to add to your comments about the 24 elders in the book of Revelation. I can't recall the references, but elsewhere in Revelation, you know, there's another song that they sing where they say, you have redeemed us out of every nation, which identifies these 24 men as people, mm -hmm. that they're, they're Christians that have been redeemed by Christ. Mm -hmm. And then elsewhere it says that they offer up the prayers of the saints at the throne of God. Yep. So you're seeing human beings redeemed by Christ who are offering up other people's prayers before the throne right. of God. It, to me, it doesn't get much clearer than yeah, that. Yeah, really, really.